This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Before we get into today's program, I just wanted to mention that Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. So go to flux.community for more podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and society, and how they all interrelate. And then we've also got a new show you can check out called Doom Scroll if you want a laugh about the awful situation that we often are in with respect to politics and news. And then, of course, you can get the full archives of this program if you go to theoryofchange.show you get the video audio and transcript and if you are a paid subscribing member you get complete unlimited access to all the episodes i thanks very much to everybody who is a paid subscriber you are making the show possible and if you can't afford to subscribe right now please give a nice review over on apple Podcasts or something like that uh, or like and subscribe on youtube that's helpful to spread the word as well so thank you very much for that All right, so with that out of the way, let's get into today's program. The 2024 presidential general election is looming large now that Donald Trump has all but vanquished the remaining putative opposition that he faced from people like Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. But at this point, many black Americans are still not very satisfied with President Joe Biden and many Democrats as well, even if they may not like Trump. So here at Theory of Change, we're doing a mini-series on Black Americans and their political views. And if you missed the first episode of this series with Stephen Robinson, which focused heavily on the Democratic Party and what it is or is not doing correctly for Black Americans, be sure to check that out. This episode is going to focus on some of the larger trends as well, because the fact of the matter is that regardless of what Democrats are doing, there are larger trends in media and in religion that actually are also impacting what black Americans think about politics. And there are some unique and interesting dynamics at work compared to other racial demographics. One of them is that black Americans who are less religious are also slightly more likely to be Republican. And that is the inverse of white and Asian groups where those who are more religious are more likely to be Republican. So why is that? Well, we're going to discuss that on today's episode. And then we'll also take a look in this discussion at the state of Black media in America. For the longest time, much of the media that Black Americans consumed in newspaper format, especially, was outlets that were locally owned and operated, in some cases originally, by churches. There are some interesting aspects of that, that as Black media, like all forms of media, has become increasingly conglomeratized, there is the question of what effect that is having on Black Americans, both in terms of their awareness of local news, but also in terms of their awareness and concern about national matters. And then joining me today to talk about all of this is two guests. We're having a panel here today. I'm joined by Tyson Jackson, who is the COO of Black With No Chaser, an independent media website, and then also joined by Marcus Johnson, who is a graduate student at American University in Washington, D.C. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Yeah. All right. Well, so there's a lot to talk about here. And as I mentioned in the intro, I think there's a lot of recriminations out there, progressive side media about, well, Joe Biden's doing this or that wrong with black voters, or he's doing this or that right. And the reality is that there's bigger forces at work here. And I think there's all this attention that's constantly the national press is sending out reporters to tell us what the rural white people think in Ohio and Iowa. And there's not a lot of reporting going on. Well, what are the larger factors at work in terms of Black Americans' political views? And some of that is related to the fact that Black Americans, the media that they are using is different and has changed over time, especially with the decline of newspapers. So Tyson, let's maybe go to you first, and then we just tell us about how independent Black media has sort of falling, dying on the vine here in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And I think, as you mentioned, or even talked about, if we think about even some of the origins of Black media coming from church basements and understanding the first printing presses that we had, or the printers at the churches for us to disseminate our news and some of the oldest Black newspapers were started in those church basements to where we are now, 
with the decline of Black media being a primary source of information in African-American communities, to looking at how digital platforms such as Black Window Chaser and other avenues in the digital forefront are how we are getting our information nowadays. And I would say to the detriment, if you will, of some of those older Black newspapers and older Black publications who were not able to change when things moved to the digital format. Now we're looking at the diversity that's out there, but also a huge void of information that we can trust and understand where the information is coming from. So it's interesting to see kind of how things are shaping up and how we have the older generations, myself, I'm a millennial, but we have from the baby boomers and Generation X um, uh, still clinging to some of the more traditional media sources to millennials, Gen Z, and then beyond are more into the digital formats, which are kind of in many different areas where they're getting their information from. Yeah. Well, and then also there's been just this real um, conglomeratization of Black media that's happened over time. So whether that is just the decline and death of many local Black newspapers, that's happened. But then it's also been the case that some of the more national platforms like BET have been absorbed into uh, giant companies like Viacom um, right. or Paramount, I guess as it's known now. And that's had some political ramifications as well, because these companies tend to be either deliberately apolitical or in some cases conservative, whether that's with the media owned by Armstrong Williams, who is a black conservative Republican consultant and also a media owner. I, mean, I don't know how you square that, but hey, and then you've got people like Byron Allen who were kind of just as apolitical as you could possibly be. And he's bought up a lot of, of a black digital outlets. So he owns the Grio, at, if I remember right. And then he owns a couple of other shows as well. And uh -huh. he had a sitcom. I don't know if it's on the air anymore now, but it was called Black President that kind of, it was, basic, it was basically like sort of, well, what if there was a sitcom version of Barack Obama? No, uh, I remember did you, that. you ever see that one? <laughs> He's had a couple uh, of sitcoms that were <laughs> <laughs> Byron Allen-ish. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so Marcus, before we get into your your research on this, did you have anything you wanted to add in terms of Black independent media and how that might affect oh, in your view? I do see the same trends that you guys see, that the internet and kind of the digital revolution has really changed and kind of fragmented the media space. A lot of these smaller newspapers have either gone out of business or been bought up. And you don't see the, the local newspapers that are related to Black communities bringing issues that matter to those communities to the forefront. A lot of news has been nationalized, there's national trends. And a lot of these smaller communities, a lot of these black communities just, I don't wanna say have been left behind, but their, their views and their opinions and the things that matter to them don't necessarily align with what gets mainstream coverage. Yeah, a similar thing happened in a lot of the rural areas, regardless of whatever racial demographic was living in them. That, like, I used to live in, in rural Missouri, and where I lived, it was mostly white. But, you know, we had one newspaper in the county, and it was a weekly newspaper, and it was the county seat of the county. Like, there was all kinds of stuff going on, but you, you would never know. <laughs> because they couldn't afford to print anything and they didn't, they had like almost no advertising. But we were lucky. If you live in, in parts of Mississippi or Alabama, you don't have any newspaper in your community. You've got nothing telling you what's going on other than if you happen to catch something on your friend's Facebook that they're mad at some school district bullshit or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's the reality that a lot of people are living in because yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Stuff that is either kind of numerically percentage wise smaller it's just going to be slipping through the cracks and and then at the national level that's also true with whether that's you're talking about racial demographic that's a smaller percentage people are like well, who cares it doesn't i can't make money off that and oh and i don't know and i i think there's also been kind of a it, as the national black media has become conglomeratized it's also become more entertainment focused as well so like back in the day, BET was very, had a lot of news coverage, depending on, especially in the presidential year, they were more likely to have stuff, right? 
But that's that's kind of gone to a large degree now, and and I guess but that's something that I you've you have known somebody Tyson who has experienced that as well. Yeah. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. So in, in thinking about just kind of BET and then thinking of the Black News Channel as it came, and even BET in its different iterations, it first came out as a balance, if you will, to MTV, which was more about the music and the entertainment aspect of things. And as we become more politically astute in the African-American community, you saw more news coming up because it was a demand that was coming from our communities. But as any time is, is, is what we see throughout history, anytime we're, we're giving these tools where we are enriching ourselves and becoming enlightened, those tools are seen, either taken away from us or eluded in many different ways. So I see that with BET as it as, as things became more political for, political for us and we began to express our political views, those avenues and where we are getting that information went away. But even in the terms of a Black news channel of thinking through, and I remember we, we my wife and I, we, we met someone from Black News Channel before Black News Channel launched, and they told us that they've been trying to get this going for 16 years. So all that time in between there to where they are now, to you get Shad Khan who comes in, who has no interest at, whatsoever in the Black community, puts money into it and gets it going and then takes it away. That That ends up for us a huge void ends up in the community of where we're where the information that we were getting from there and where we're getting it from now with those things happening. So it's kind of you see the rise and fall of this and now as you even talked about just kind of that delusion of diluting um the information. Well now it's more entertainment and now it's more world star hip hops. It's more the shade room where this information is coming from. We're seeing important things that are happening in the world being uh, reported to us by these sites that also have some of the most salacious things that you can see out there about African-Americans or about anything going on, period, that you have mm-hmm. this mend in between the two. So what is real, what's not real, and what's exploiting us and what's benefiting is kind of the question that I'm left with. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and I think it's also, even when you look at some of the people who are now nationally prominent in what you could at least technically called black news, whether that's like, I mean, Charlemagne the God. I mean, like, mm-hmm. this a dude that doesn't even use his real name. <laughs> that, I think, in a nutshell, just that right there shows you that this is not news. Like, this is not Tom Joyner. <laughs> right. I mean, for what it's worth, the Breakfast Club, which you, you get Charlemagne to come from, has mm-hmm. turned out to be pretty pivotal in, when it comes to just discussing things that are going on in our community. And, and, the entertainment aspect of it is there, but they're also, they bring in a lot of people that we need to hear from as well, too. There has been some really dynamic interviews on that show in Charlemagne, um, even though going by <laughs> a fake name or a name that's made up there or not his real name has contributed to the discourse that I think that is needed in some ways. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to say he's he's all bad, but it's I get, I don't know. To me, he reminds me more of like a black Howard Stern than because Howard Stern. Howard Stern had politicians come on his shows all the mm-hmm. time and journalists. So that's because like and he did some good stuff. I can't take that away from him. I think it's kind of like the Daily Show, if you will. <laughs> in, in the Daily Show for it, it mm-hmm. broke the mold when it comes to politics of us learning about things, but it mm-hmm. did it in a way that entertained us. It did it in a way that mm-hmm. brought us to the conversation with laughs and 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 not just something that's so heavy and serious. But through yeah. that, John Stewart was able to introduce us to many different people who have a different take on how politics should be delivered and how the news should be delivered. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a fair point, but you don't want to have only that. <laughs> yeah. You got anything you're thinking on that, Marcus, this topic? Well, part of this to me speaks to like a broader trend of kind of a lot of black elites have been kind of co-opted into profit seeking and rent seeking versus doing what's best for the black community, even if it means that you don't necessarily make a profit. And I think that part of this trend of infotainment or entertainment as as news is part of the rent-seeking process where news isn't necessarily as profitable as it maybe used to be. Some of the other types of education maybe aren't as profitable as, as they can be. And so 
Um, we have elites who are seeking out different ways to make money versus different ways to help out and improve the community. And I, I think it's, it's a, a real problem for the black community in that we have pushed kind of this idea that, well, you just have to, to make it. And it's kind of this individualized idea versus how can we help the community? What things can we do to improve education, to improve healthcare, to improve access to different types of resources? And instead as well, this different artist got this car, this different person said this on the shade room or on this Instagram or Twitter or whatever. So I, I think it's really an indictment on some of the black or really the whole class of, of black elites that we've kind of turned away from revolutionary ideas and ideas that can really improve the well-being of the community towards ideas that can or kind of a narrative that you need to seek individualized gain that you need to be able to try to get the newest car or the newest house or whatever so i think that's a i think part of this entertainment trend in media is really a, a microcosm or kind of a symptom of this larger issue that we have with black leaders um, kind of taking a, a path that isn't beneficial to the broader group. Hmm. Yeah. And, and let me just say, I'm going to cut this out, but like anytime, like whenever the other person's done talking or anybody's ta done talking, like if you want to just jump in when say okay. whatever you want, cool. feel free to. So yeah. So I'll let you respond to that Tyson if you want, and then we can move on if you don't. Yeah, well, in, in, in hearing and thinking about it, this is like when we started Black with No Chaser, our first iteration that we did, we did a couple blogs um, and trying to get going. But right before Black with No Chaser came about, we had a blog called Emmett Trill. Um, and so it combines Emmett Teal's name with Trill, which is a, a Southern rap uh, slang for something means too real, I guess, <laughs> Trill. Um, but so Emmett Trill, and, and, but we were covering at that time from Trayvon Martin to, to Mike Brown to the other police killings, that uh, extrajudicial police killings that were happening in the African-American community. We started covering that and it got really, really heavy. And it was like, I, I just, I didn't have the energy to write or even wanted to be there in that space because it was so, it was so much trauma with that. So we, we began to think of, all right, we are funny people. We like to joke. We like to laugh. We like to experience life. We're humans. We're multifaceted. So we wanted something that showed that. So we thought about going to the entertainment route as well, too. And, and some of the ways that we were able to grow our audience as fast as what we did was because we had mixed in some entertainment stuff. However, we knew we didn't want to be a shade room. We knew we didn't want to be a uh, world style hip hop. Uh, we didn't want to share any of that negative stuff. So we chose not to do that. But we did bring through some entertainment. So I think that there is an actual value, if you will, for that aspect of, of, of I don't want to say news, but a media, if you will, today that brings people to the table for that. But I do agree with Marcus, what you said, when we think about the elites and we think about kind of the black elite and kind of that hoarding, if you will, of that information and hoarding of that space. And the same thing we see in politics, too, of them not passing the torch, but it, it it's not passing the torch when it comes to news and media as well, too. And it's kind of like they're just taking these things to their grave with them and it's not serving our communities. Yeah. No, that, and I think that's a, and that is a problem with Democrats as well. Like these people will not retire. They want to die in office. <laughs> right. uh, and the problem is like, it's going to drag everybody else down along the way because they can't. And I think Nancy Pelosi is probably the best example of that, but you know, she just is so out of touch with what the, the generic democratic base voter wants or thinks about stuff. Whatever it is, like she just doesn't know what people want. And, and she's most prominently demonstrated that with her awful remarks about saying that people who are upset about Gaza, they're, they're being controlled by Vladimir Putin. That was just, it was embarrassing. And, but this is, this is, so, I mean, yeah, so like, but of course that was, I mean, we could talk all day about what the Democrats did or didn't do, but, but you're right. Yeah. And I guess, but let, let, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but maybe let's, before we move on to Marx's uh, research, I did, in terms of like this sort of transition to kind of a more of a respectability striver type politics that you're talking about, Tyson, is it, is some of that related to the 
the emergence of Barack Obama as the president, do you think? Did that change things in terms of what black elites thought should be done? And I'll, I'll want you to weigh in also, Marcus. Yeah, I, I don't know if that changed things. I think what we saw with Barack Obama being elected is a culmination of a lot of their efforts along the way to make sure that African-Americans are enfranchised in their fights in, in many different arenas for representation. And it came through and just happened to be at a time where in the world, I think things were changing. You had the undercurrent of the younger generation that was coming up and also looking at the election of Barack Obama, but that necessarily wasn't our candidate. It wasn't a progressive candidate, but we were brought into it because we were Black and we knew that what if you will, the significance of voting for a Black person in there, but the respectability politics of that era and that generation is something that has always been there and is still here now, too. It's just the populations are shifting now where that, that generation is sunsetting where another one is rising up. So I think some of that respectability politics is being pushed out the door, but so much of it is is still in place because they hold a lot of the resources. So, <laughs> you know, who has the money in the Black community? Well, it, it happens to be those same people who are involved in a lot of respectability politics. Okay. All right. Well, Marcus, what's your take? Yeah, I think Barack Obama is kind of a consequence of decisions that were made decades earlier. If you look at the 1960s, the civil rights movement, and the leaders of the civil rights movement decided that we don't want to work outside of the system. We want to work within the system. We want to be inclusionary of what it means to be American, what it means to want to participate in the U.S. government. And I think that in making that decision versus being people who wanted to make radical change, they decided to be people who are going to make incremental change. And I think that that meant that they were going to produce a class of politicians who were amenable to the, the American state and the American interests. And those things weren't always necessarily in Black interests. And I mean, you see that over time, it's not like Black wealth has dramatically changed. It's not like the amount of resources Black people have have, have radically changed in their stature in society or the social hierarchy. So I think that Barack Obama is just a product. And, and really, the Black political class at large is kind of a product of decisions that were made many decades ago. And I think we're starting to see the possibility for change in that the younger generations are saying that, hey, this situation hasn't necessarily worked out for us. We don't have the money that we were promised. We don't have this necessarily this American dream that we were promised. And we think that things should change potentially radically. So I think that the younger generations are, are much less likely to be favorable to Barack Obama or to be favorable to some of these other Democratic politicians who are leading the party right now. And they want to see things change so that they can have the better life that they were promised. So um you know, I think that even though things have been difficult for the Black community, I think that uh, even even though you have this, you're, you're staring down the specter of potentially another Trump administration, I look at the future and I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, I think that uh, there's still the potential for a successful multiracial democracy where people really can make it. But I, I think that uh, the current political class isn't getting people the results or, or young people the results that they want. I mean, I think that you look at the, the relative living standards. I think that it's harder and harder to make it. It's harder to rent, a, rent an apartment. It's harder to buy a house. It's, it's harder to 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 live. So people want change. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, can I make one yeah. comment there? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, and then and, and I was listening to it. It made me also just think about kind of the whole defund the police kind of thing that came out there, right? And it was the younger generations that were pushing for this. And I'm, I'll just be clear, I'm an abolitionist. So I believe in destroying, tearing it down, and let's rebuild something better and whatever that process comes about. However, I looked at the messaging that came out, defund the police, defund the police, and how it was met with fierce objection, mainly in the Black community by some of our elders. But then I was reminded, living in Jackson, Mississippi, that those are the same elders who fought for representation in the police department. It was their, it was their generation who were the first Black 
police officers, first black firefighters, first black what what have you in these spaces and how important that was for them. So when we come around and say, let's defund the police and we're looking at a police department that is majority African-American in a place like Jackson, Mississippi, it, it, it fell upon deaf ears. And I think that they're still looking at it from being in this kind of wedge generation. I understand what they're saying on one hand, but I also fiercely understand what's being said on the other end of what the changes and the, the reform that needs to happen within the police departments and how we need to look at police officers who are who are responding to everything and look at making sure that there's resources to really diversify who responds to what kind of things that are called for. So I, I, I just brought that up to say, okay, I'm looking at this older generation there and they fought for so much and for many of them, they're still fighting to this day because they still haven't seen the true change happen in our communities that that was promised by whoever organized them to get them started or, or whatever ambition they had to get started. They haven't seen it being actualized. So they're still fighting. It's just the fight has changed so much. It's so more, much more dynamic. And I don't think they see where we are in our position in the fight as well as theirs, or if they think one is a priority over the other. Yeah, there's still fighting the last war, basically, in a sense. Yeah, all right. Well, so now in terms of the intergenerational dynamics here, that's something that you've been looking at a lot, Marcus, in your research. And the stuff that you've been doing is really interesting to me. And it's a, you haven't published the paper yet, so I can't, we're not going to link to it yet for people, but I definitely will encourage people to check that out when it comes out. But the stuff you got you and your research partner are looking at is sort of the religious dynamics in among African-American communities and looking at how, how, how majority Black congregations have functioned as kind of a political literacy program for a lot of people who now that participation in those and those churches has declined quite a bit among black Americans. And it's also changing black Americans political attitudes. Let's hopefully that's a good enough setup for you. Tell, tell us what, what, what you've been working on with all that. Yeah. Well, the black church has really been this really important institution in the black community for such a long time. I mean, going back to really the abolition of, of slavery all throughout the rest of American history. So you look at the Black church as an institution, and, and historically, it's been this central aspect of Black American life, and that is increasingly not the case. Religiosity is dropping throughout the country, kind of with all demographics, but with the Black community, the Black church has had such a strong impact on all aspects of life that we're really starting to see some, some major changes. I mean, as Black church attendance declines, what we're seeing is that there's lower levels of support for Democrats. There's lower levels of Democratic identification. And what we found in our research, my co-author and I, Mark Tenenbaum, is that the Black church kind of functions as a place where social pressure can be exerted, where social and political norms can be established. And when people aren't going to the church, when Black people aren't going to the Black church and being surrounded by other Black Americans, they're not getting these social cues. They're not getting these social pressures. And so they're less likely to do things that are perceived as in the group interest. And that involves democratic support. Now, we find that when Blacks are going to Black churches, they're more likely to support Democrats, to identify as democratic. And when they go to white churches or multiracial churches, they don't get those same cues. It's been well-researched by other scholars that white Americans who go to church typically have the opposite kind of effects. They're more likely to vote for Republicans. They're more likely to be conservative. And part of that's because they're getting the opposite social cue in those churches. And that's why you see kind of this, the same kind of thing for whites who don't go to church or who have left church is that they're less Republican or less conservative on average than, than whites who go to church. So we're kind of interested in that psychological phenomenon, the social pressure, how it impacts political attitudes and political behaviors. And I think that we're kind of transitioning into a country that's going to be less religious, a country where you're going to have more people who are atheists and agnostic or people who maybe are spiritual but don't attend church. And what we find is that it's being around other people in the institution getting those group cues, getting those social cues, establishing those social norms. Those are places where people kind of figure out what are group expectations? What do other people in my group expect from me? And, and that stuff matters for ideology and partisanship. 
Yeah, it does. It's This comes out of the concept of what a lot of sociologists sometimes call linked fate or shared struggle. So for people who haven't heard those terms, especially as they relate to Black Americans, you want to give a little overview of that for them? Yeah, so linked fate is essentially the idea that what happens to other people in my group matters for me. So what happens to Trayvon Martin matters for me. What happens to Mike Brown matters for me. And what scholars have found among Black Americans is that linked fate is particularly high, higher than it is for other racial and demographic groups in the United States. And part of that, we believe, is from the social pressure component, from being in institutions, whether that's the Black church, whether that's HBCUs, whether that's Black schools or other kinds of Black institutions, you get those social that social pressure, those group expectations. You want to do what's in the best interest of the group, what you perceive is going to not only help you, but help other Black Americans that are around you, around the country. And so that's kind of the concept of, of linked fate. It's really the idea of what matters for, for me also matters for other Black people in the community. Yeah. And some of that's essentially what we're describing as being lost here, whether through these religious migrations that we're seeing. And one of those dividers is income, where because that's another thing, and I and you do you look at that a little bit also in your research, Marcus, with the income that's for people who are black and higher income not being part of a black church. It's like this concept of that I've upgraded my life now. I go to the white church. I don't go to the black church. At least that's what people have said to me. That's some of what we're talking about here, right? Like proximity to whiteness, if you will, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would definitely agree with that, that generally as you go up on the income scale among blacks, generally you're going to see less of democratic identification, a little bit lower levels of linked fate, not as much drop off on on linked fate, but a little bit of drop off of democratic identification. And part of that is because you don't have the social pressure component. You're more likely to be in white spaces. You're more likely to be in high income spaces where other Black Americans aren't around, whereas middle class and poor Black Americans are likely to be in spaces where there's more Black Americans around and they get those group cues and and that social pressure that maybe higher income Black Americans aren't getting on a regular basis. And the white Americans that they're around are also more likely to be Republican as well. That's despite all the propaganda of the Republicans about how we're the working class party, et cetera. It's, the reality is when you look at income, the more a white person makes, the more likely they're to be a Republican. That's just how it is. It is. Uh, just changing a little bit, though. I mean, I, I think that you're seeing more wealthy white Americans. Turn who have a, if they have postgraduate education. Yeah, yeah. 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 Education definitely plays a role. But education and income typically are correlated. So I think that mm-hmm. income isn't. as strong a correlate of partisanship among whites as it has been in the past. I mean, in the past, it was really strong Mm -hmm. that as you got more money, you became more Republican. And I think that that's still true, but not to the same extent. And I was I was going to say, I think it's interesting living in and I live in D.C. now, but I lived in in Mississippi for a long time and kind of the dynamics hadn't really changed. And I thought it was always interesting that what you would consider black elites, those who had the most money were still in the same neighborhoods, if you will, but the folks who didn't have money is like, they were really accessible. Like that's actually a, a multi-millionaire over there that you could just walk up to where in other places, like those folks are just not accessible. Like the the division between economics is, is huge as well too within the black community. I've lived in, in, in major cities like here, even in DC, right? You see just in that division of folks, but in the South specifically, like places like Mississippi, Alabama, the segregation is so much that if you're black, you live on this side. If you're white, you live on this side. So you're in intertwined. And most of the time at the churches, the, the black elite families are the ones who are sitting in the front rows who are, are heading the churches and, and doing different things. And they, they have a certain regard and esteem, but they're there in the same spaces. And from my experience, what I've got a chance to see kind of in the South, I see that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important point to, yeah, that it, think this stuff can be different depending on where you're at. Yeah. So in terms of Black non-religiosity, just to go back, to some of your research, Marcus. Among whites and Asians, it's definitely the case that people who are not religious are much more likely to be democratic. Whereas, yeah, that correlation, it's it's not as, it's 
almost the reverse among a lot of Black Americans. And that's, it's the only racial demographic group where that is the case. You want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, some of it you've already t- said on here, but there's some unique aspects here, right? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, definitely in the white community, religiosity is really strongly found in the South, in the Old South. And so you're going to see the highest levels of church attendance among whites who live in the Southern states, maybe going out a little bit West to like Oklahoma, above Texas and stuff like that. But that's generally where you're going to see church going among whites in in the United States at the highest levels. And the cues and the social pressure that they're getting when they go to church is to be conservative, is to be Republican, is to vote for people like Donald Trump. Whereas in the Black community, when they go to church, they're hearing about social, the same kind of social pressure and, and things of that nature, but it's things that are perceived to improve the Black community. So you're going to hear about, hey, we need to vote for Democrats because we believe that Democrats are going to be a better option for us than Republicans who we think are going to go out of their way to try to harm Black interests. And so when you're in these institutions that have a lot of Black Americans and you want to be a good member of your group, you want to be in good group standing, you're going to go out and, and do things that are in the best interest of your group uh, as, as far as you perceive it. So it's not surprising to me that Black Americans who go to church less typically have lower levels of, of Democratic ID. Now, I mean, they're still more likely to vote for Democrats than a lot of other groups, even if they aren't going to church. But you definitely see there's a difference in degree between Black Americans who go to church a lot and, and Black Americans who don't, their level of support for Democrats and Democratic self-identification. Yeah. Well, and now, but the, here's the other interesting thing is that on the kind of opposite extreme of religiosity, there has also been a bleeding among Black Americans. So, and particularly for Black Americans who are kind of involved in the the, the new apostolic reformation movement or other Pentecostal type denominations, which are, it, I mean, they were historically speaking, you know, the, the kind of the first real integrated religious denominations in the United States, but now they become completely overrun with the most radical far-right Christians in America. And they're coming for the Black church and especially in the in the in the south with the protestant congregations and it's 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 disturbing what they're doing and they're doing the same thing with a, a lot of latino outreach as well especially with recent immigrants they target them heavily for recruitment because like they don't have anything they don't they just got to the country they don't know anybody and so they these guys offer them a built-in network and that's good enough for some people and so it's it's this is a thing that's happening on the edges. An example of this would be like Kanye West, that he was somebody who converted to this Pentecostal form of Protestantism. And as everybody knows by now, he is off the chain, insane, basically fascist and well, self-proclaimed Hitler lover. Like that's this is a thing that is happening on, on the margins and maybe people who like you might have your friend from high school or college that they went off the deep end or something, but you also don't realize they also like Donald Trump now and QAnon. <laughs> uh, would, would you guys have any thoughts on that? Tyson, I'll let you go first on that. <laughs> Kanye is always an interesting subject, no matter what. But I think in, 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 in as Kanye there, and just thinking about kind of how churches are formed from connected churches to in the Protestant form of the disconnected churches that you get within just more of the Baptists and in ways that you have your new denominations that are popping up left and right. People are claiming themselves to be bishops, the same thing that you had with storefront preachers back in the day. <laughs> now they're just not using storefronts, they're just using social media to get out there and uh, and, and preach whatever message that they want to preach. But it's not necessarily coming from any lineage that is entrenched in the history that 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 served the African-American community. It's just more individualism than anything. And just seeing someone like Kanye get out there and do the same thing that we see others that are, are doing that, that serves themselves and themselves only. And I think for us in the African-American community, especially thinking of the history and the lineage that we have there, a lot of what has served us has been more of a collective effort. And as you said there, and as, as Marcus said, just kind of how our, our face are, are, are linked through kind of that process, but that collective aspect of who we are is very still very much important and then you have a Kanye and others who are, are going against the grain of that. And it makes them at odds with the black community. It's like, oh man, 
you know, sold out. <laughs> you, you know, sold out. <laughs> Everything you did, you just you, you, you've sold out a hundred percent, and it even comes deeper into just kind of thinking that that comes from some kind of religious philosophy, self doctrine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to 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 build on that, I mean, I, I definitely agree a hundred percent. To me, Kanye West is somebody who is even more than a, a co-opted elite. Like you said, I, I would characterize him as a as a sellout of somebody who doesn't care about the black community and is actively working against black interests and can be probably characterized as anti-black. And a, a lot of black artists, unfortunately, are like that these days. But there's always been movements on the fringe. There's always been 10 to 15 percent of black Americans who vote for Republicans who are going to be supportive of somebody like Donald Trump, are going to be supportive of other conservative interests. So even though these movements are on the fringe, I, I don't view them as necessarily char- like characterized as having major support in the Black community. I, I don't think that they're going to be movements that are going to really pick up and, and gain steam. Even though the Black church is kind of in a, in a slow decline, or even more than a slow decline, I mean, you still see Black Americans who don't attend church are, on average, going to be more democratic than most other racial and ethnic groups. So I think that you still have a level of cohesion within the community, even though you're going to have some of these different fringe groups or fringe ideas kind of pop up. I don't think that they're going to have major play within the community anytime soon. I, I actually do, though. If, if, if Just on, on the back of that, just kind of from maybe cursory research, if you will, or just kind of interactions within those who may not be in the mainstream political conversation, African-American community, and much of, and many of them are already supporting Trump. And they believe that Trump was the one who got them their stimulus checks. They like the fact that Trump doesn't hold, holds no bars. Sexy says, Red said that explicitly. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. Sexy Red. And, but she's not the only one. There are so many others that are there. And so, and they're going to repeat what a Sexy Red says in, in so many ways. But in the same time, this is just a conversation that's there. For the most part, the Democratic Party, for being a person who's worked in, in politics and worked on the on Democratic side, and I say that I'm not affiliated with any party, even though most of the stuff I've done has been within the Democratic and progressive movements, I, I've seen so many times of just neglect to that aspect of the community. We need to go and canvas over there and make sure that they're being involved. They, they don't vote. We're going to go after the ones who we know who vote, who are your older church going people. And that's typically where the target is. So now you have all these people over here that are apathetic, that are not involved in any political process whatsoever. And now you get a Trump to come up. And I've seen the same thing happen on the other side, because the crazy thing is, uh, remember, we in Mississippi, we still had the Confederate flag flying. And this is back in 2000. 15, 2016, we we led a rally to take down the flag. It was a pretty big rally. The next week, like the Sons of the Confederates did a rally down there in the same spot. So they had all the Confederate flags. We went out there and it was three of us. We went out there and had a conversation with them. And what they were saying was the same thing our communities were saying. They were mad at the, the, the politicians or the legislators inside of Mississippi State House, just like we were as well, too. But they were tricked in believing that it was us who were the, the issue. So when I see that and then when I go to the African-American community and those who are not involved in the political process, not necessarily Democrat or whatever, they're saying the same things that they were saying. And then you get a Trump that rises up who begins to champion their message. And I think what we'll hear from Trump this time, he's going to co-opt a lot more Black folks into this this time. You're going to see a lot more rappers getting involved into it. You're going to see a lot more people that are that you wouldn't see normally in there because Joe Biden has done zero outreach to them. The Democratic Party has done zero outreach to them to get them involved. And they come in the last minute where Trump, over these last four years of him not being president, they've been working their way and making inroads into that community. So I'll, I'll be, I'll, 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 <laughs> I'm bracing myself for a large part of the African-American community to start saying that they're for Trump. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I think that polls right now are kind of not predictive because we're a little bit of the way out and people still think on the back of their minds, maybe there could be some kind of change in the two candidates. But I think that as we get closer and people see that it's, Trump or Biden, I think ultimately 85 to 90 percent of the black community is going to vote for Biden. I think that they're not going to necessarily be happy about it. I think they're not going to be like super enthusiastic about it. But I mean, black people vote for Democrats, not necessarily out of some major self-love, but that they know that Republicans are actively 
most of the time actively against their interests. That Trump represents kind of a reactionary white force that wants to go back to a time when there was less, was kind of part of what my dissertation is about, less competition mm -hmm. over resources like jobs and income and, and land and other things of that nature with minority groups. So Trump represents kind of the idea that white people have to compete in a way that they shouldn't have to. That, that these different minority groups are taking things and, and mm -hmm. trying to get a place in a social hierarchy that they don't necessarily deserve or, or whatever the case may be. And that's why you see Trump say things like, oh, these are shithole countries or talk about other minorities not shouldn't shouldn't have these types of rights or whatever. And so I, I think that as Trump gets back on TV and he's saying more of these things, Republicans are saying more of these things. I think that the black community was going to look at that. And I think they're going to talk amongst themselves and say, you know what? We don't always like all the things Democrats do. They don't always help us a lot, but they're not going to actively go out and try to hurt us in the way the Republicans do. And I think that that's honestly the story of, of Democratic, the Democratic Party with, with Black Americans for a long time. It's part of why you don't get the necessarily enthusiasm that maybe you should. But I think that in a, in a two-party system, you're still actively probably going to vote for the party and candidate that's, that's not actively trying to harm your group. And I, I overall agree with that in, in looking at it just for political analysis. Malcolm X said they put, they put you last and you put them first <laughs> as a political chump. So that has been something that's been there the whole time. And he was talking about the Democratic Party back then as well as we're talking about the Democratic Party now. And it, it, so I overall 100 percent agree. And I think we're going to see that dynamic. But I think we're going to see a little more of the African-American community especially those who probably historically haven't been voting, trumpet Trump's message. I'm not going to say they're going to vote. <laughs> that's going to that's be the deciding factor right there. You could talk all that you want. Sounds good. You could put sexy red on TV and she could say, I love Trump all day, but did sexy red actually go vote? That's going to be the question. The, the, the ones who are following along, are they actually going to go vote? Historically, they haven't. And I don't think that the outreach is going to be done on the level that it needs to, to actually get them out to vote. Yeah. Um, exploited, for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and one dynamic that I think when people are, are looking at the post Obama Democrats, I think that there was a, there was an assumption among a lot of democratic elites that how things were in terms of black turnout and the percentage of the black vote that Democrats got, that that was the new baseline. And I don't think that that's reality. And it never was. And they were completely wrong about that. Because like, I mean, I had several relatives who were Black and they said they were only voting for Obama in 2012 because he was Black. They didn't really like him very much. They just didn't want him to lose <laughs> from being the incumbent. The only the first Black president to lose re-election, well, they didn't want that but they didn't really like him. And whereas, and then of course, then you got everybody after him who has been not black. Is it, is it any wonder then that there would be some reversion to the mean that there's a, I think the reality is there's a lot of, of black Americans out there who are, they would be Republicans if the Republican party wasn't deliberately and unintentionally courting racists. Um, I mean, that's, that's the reality. There's a lot of, of mm -hmm. church going, black people who would vote Republican if they could, but they just feel like they can't. <laughs> I mean, historically we have. I mean, even a Condoleezza Rice mm -hmm. will tell you the reason why she was a Republican was because the Republicans were the ones who got her her father opportunity to vote. And so the Republicans were the ones back in the day. It was before Barry Goldwater and the whole switch and the Democrat, uh, the, the Southern strategy came about and the, and the switch happened in politics. But the Republican Party was there, but that's still our older generation. And many of them still harbor that. But they vote, <laughs> like you said, they vote Democrat because of the, the other aspects, but they truly are conservative um, mm -hmm. in their value in nature, and they would vote Republican if it wasn't for the racial aspect of things. Yeah, so whether it's they don't like gay people or they they think everything is woke or whatever, whatever is going through their head. I mean, that's that. There's the reality. There's a lot of people the out there. So won't pull their pants up. That's what's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's why poverty exists. It's only that. <laughs> but another potential factor and who knows what it is and i'm curious to see what you guys think is that the to some extent the republican party and and reactionary groups are 
not a huge amount, but to some degree, like to, to go back to what you said a little bit about Donald Trump and rappers. I mean, whether it's so you got Kanye, you've got now apparently Snoop Dogg saying he's he's got love for Donald Trump because he got pardoned one of his former record label friends and then Sexy Red. And uh-huh. there, there's and I mean, for for a minute there in when Bush was the president, if I remember right, it wasn't 50 Cent. Didn't he like Bush? I think he did at some point. So like. I think there is something there and, and, and maybe it's just a function of that. These people get a lot of money and they want to keep it. <laughs> maybe that's what it is. But I mean, but, but you also see these right wing groups like turning point USA. A lot of these right wing re- reactionary groups are propping people like Candace Owens or Rob Smith or some of these other black Republican people. They're really putting them out there. And, and by contrast, I don't see a lot of progressive groups or donors or the democratic party, they're not out there flooding people on YouTube with stuff. They're just not like, if you watch YouTube, man, it's like one almost nonstop right wing garbage in terms of the politics content where then it doesn't matter what your race is. They got, they got a a fresh and fit for you. If you're black and any number of them, if, if you're white, they don't care. Nick Fuentes, he'll have you too. If you're black. And he says that explicitly. I'll, I'll take black people over Jews any day. So, I mean, I don't know, but are these people just, are they going anywhere? Or are they making a difference? What, what, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think the Republicans historically, at least the last 20, 30 years, have commonly done this where they think they can kind of buy off a black celebrity and that's going to really get them an inroad into the black community. And I, I just don't see it. I mean, you, last cycle you had Lil Wayne, you had... Kanye West, you had a couple of these other black rappers, you had uh, people like Diamond and Silk who tried to be <laughs> black influencers who for, for <laughs> that, that, that stuff just doesn't work because they're, they're approaching the whole thing wrong. I mean, black people are going into their different institutions and talking amongst themselves in their communities and saying, okay, well, what's, they're kind of having a debate of like, okay, what's best for black interest? What's best for the group? And so just buying off a celebrity and saying, hey, look, I have this celebrity with me, like that doesn't change the nature of the deliberations within the group. I mean, you're still, if you're Donald Trump to the Republican Party, pushing anti-Black policies, <laughs> you're pushing an anti-Black message. And at the end of the day, I think that people see through that. And I think that they're like, hey, Democrats aren't going to go out and be permanently anti-Black in the way that Republicans are going to be. And I think that one thing that's interesting, and one thing I think that could have helped them if, if Republicans had a lot more Black people in the Senate or in Congress or in, in local state houses, and I mean, they really don't. One of the things that was really interesting, and I don't know, this kind of seems anecdotal, there might be some data to back this up, but it seems that whenever they've run a Black candidate, like they had a Black, I think, was a senator or, or governor candidate in, in Michigan, they kind of underperform. It seems like Black Republicans tend to underperform where they should be, where other white Republicans get their vote share. And I think that sends a signal that, hey, they might try to get a celebrity. They might try to buy off some some people from BT or MTV or whatever. But when it comes to really giving black people political power, the Republican Party isn't really, they're not really a fan of that. So I, I think that that stuff matters more than the black celebrities. I, I don't think that's the celebrity stuff's going anywhere. Yeah. And I, I'll agree with that. I, I don't think that that actually is going to move the needle. Actually, what is going to get changed anything is really if you're getting people to get out and vote. The only way you're going to get people to get out and vote is if you're knocking on the doors and you're really there and, and having a ground game with that as well, too. So having a little Wayne get out there and, and say anything is not going to mean anything. And if we look at the political operations that are, are, are put out there, for the most part, Republicans are going to hire young white people to get out there and do that, do that work. And most part, they can't go into African-American communities inconspicuously, if you will, <laughs> to do the work that needs to be done. They're going to be, everyone's going to notice that you got some white folks walking around here and that means we're about to shut our doors and we ain't going to open up for you because we don't know who you here and what you're there for. So you, it's not an effective strategy, if you will, because the whole the, the whole aspect of uh, from having someone that influences people, but actually having the people that get out there and win the elections for the candidate is two different things. So uh, yeah, I just don't see it necessarily a changing thing. And and for what it's worth, we, we've had Sambos in our community for a long time. <laughs> it ain't going to change. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 
really quickly, I mean, I think it's really a story of maybe Democrats not getting the black turnout they want and maybe black people not being as enthusiastic about Democrats versus black people being enthusiastic about Republicans and really increasing Republican vote share. It might just be that black people say, hey, I'm not enthusiastic about Democrats. I'm not going to turn out versus I'm turning out for Republicans. That's facts. I agree. Yeah. Well, and that's actually, no, that does take me to one thing that I actually have been doing a lot of writing and research about, and that is there, there's two there's two things that Republicans use to shape the electorate. One is is voter suppression, which, of course, taking your ability to vote away from you. But then there's also voter depression, which is to get you to willingly throw it away. Uh-huh. And that's what the candidacy of Cornell West is about. And that's like this dude directly got money from the big Republican fat cats. They're propping him up. And you look at like they love funding hopeless uh, candidates, especially black ones. And this was something that that Pat Buchanan, when he worked in the Nixon White House, he wrote a, a memo explicitly about we're going to find black candidates and run them as third parties and give them money and prop them up in order to to splinter the black vote. And you see that to this day, whether mm-hmm. it is over on Rumble, that is owned in large part by Peter Thiel, the, the far right investor. He's he's paying people like Glenn Greenwald and he's paying people like Brianna Joy Gray to get them to to prop up this hopeless third party nonsense. Like I remember I was on her show one time and she was telling me how Marianne Williamson, she's a real candidate. She's going to win. Well, and today, as we're recording this, she dropped out and ended her grift operation. <laughs> she had so, a beautiful quote, though. That's still one of my favorite quotes of all time. <laughs> Which one was that? What is it that we subconsciously let our light shine and let other folks shine their light? It's something like that. And I'll mess it up. But that's my only introduction to Marianne Williams. Because <laughs> before, long before she ran for president, I had that quote up and I had her name under it. So, <laughs> so oh, I was damn, like, oh, that's the that quote down. lady. <laughs> that's the quote lady. She had a great quote. But I, I, I do, I, I think, I'd be remiss if not to mention, though, Biden campaign right now sucks. And it, it, it was horrible in 2016. Well, what year was it? 2020, as well, too, as it is now. And if it wasn't for Clyburn in, in South Carolina, I don't think we would have a Biden as, as president. But also, to the detriment of, of, of us, we had South Carolina and, 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 and Jim Clyburn kind of sell Black folks down the river. It's like, we got this is the black vote. And and for us as black folks, a lot of folks, I'm like, that's not necessarily what I was hoping for. That's not what I wanted to see. And I think we're gonna see a lot of that same thing now. And it's it's not showing up and giving the true answers to the or solutions to the issues that are going on in our communities, and it's still ignoring it. And I think we're gonna we have the binary, we won't have any choice, but you don't know, have a, a Biden or a Trump. But at the same time, I think we're still going to get the short end and stick and we're not going to move anywhere. And I don't think that's going to bring more voters to the polls in the future. You guys see that picture up that that Republican pollster put on on Twitter the other day of the of the two black men, one of whom has three arms. You guys see that? Mm-mm. See that. Okay, well, I got to show it to you then. <laughs> just as an example of what you what you were talking about, that their outreach efforts are just so ham fisted. Uh Let's see here. Oh, man, he deleted his tweet. Uh, <laughs> you got to screenshot those. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, people screenshot it, so don't worry about that. But let's no way I got it. add it to the mix here. So let's see. Share screen. There we go. Okay. Yeah, and, and just to your point, Marcus, to go back, the Republican Party and their problem with black outreach. They <laughs> there was a Republican pollster the other day that he put out a tweet that said the Republican victory in 2024 depends on their being able to do this. Oh, AI. <laughs> and he used an AI generated photo oh, because wow. he couldn't find any black Republicans canvassing <laughs> photos. And the dude who is being talked to in the second photo has three. <laughs> so yeah if that's what you guys are working with you, you do have a problem here <laughs> and to that end they also had a charlie kirk has been uh, of turning point usa he has a program now 
He's based doing black outreach by telling black people that Martin Luther King was terrible and evil. <laughs> so in some ways it's good that they're so incompetent because they are so awful. But I mean, I, I think some of that, it, it, it starts to resonate and you know, I'm thinking of this young person who hears this now and how many years is it going to take to unlearn all of this BS, right? For them to be in a state where they can actually learn and be politically educated and 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 mm. vote for and think about things in the best interest. Hearing this now, that that person who gravitated might be that one percent as we as we talk about a small percentage of the black community that starts to hear this. But how long is it going to take for them to get enfranchised and and be in a mm. position of power? To, to vote in their own, well, especially interest. if they hear no other alternative right. message, because like, because like, ultimately, from the Dem the Democrats' problem with black people generally is always the same, which is, is uh, which is also their their ultimate problem with the larger electorate, which is right wing media now is so huge that it's bigger than a lot of the mainstream quote unquote media. You look on CNN.com, you know, like CNN on YouTube. They don't have as many people looking at their stuff as the Daily Wire does. You look at Facebook, the Daily Wire is the number one publisher on Facebook. They got more hits on Facebook than the New York Times does and any of the alphabet networks or whatever. And like th these are serious issues in terms of what people are being subjected to. So I think that's a good point that you're making there, Tyson, that, you know, it, at how things stand now, it may not be doing too much, but when people don't have any alternative, you know, especially if they're on YouTube, you know, like you look at Andrew Tate. I mean, he's not on YouTube now, but there's a lot of kids. I mean, I, I hear from middle school teachers and high school teachers that they're like, oh yeah, all my, all my boys, they, they worship him and what, and believe whatever he tells them. And, 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 and I think, and, and a lot of that is coming down to misogyny in many cases, particularly in regards to black women, like that's kind of a way to the Republicans think that they're going to peel off black men, young black men through hating black women. And, yeah. and some of that, like, and, and what's his name? Matt Gates, the Republican from Florida, he explicitly said that he said for every Karen, meaning white woman that we lose, we're going to get a Julio and a Jamal. And that's, that's what they're thinking. And that's, the, and whether they are, whether that's going to work or how soon it would work, I don't know, but it's something that people got to take seriously. I feel like. You know, as you said, I thought of the most diabolical thing that, that they're doing in the background, because looking at Kushner and Ivanka and their involvement and in bringing in Kim Kardashian, but their involvement and in looking at mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex and thinking of alternatives, but also thinking in the background that there's an ushering in of releasing Black people from or releasing all these people from, from prisons, but putting ankle monitors on them and having them pay for this. So that is the, the change. And how this happens now is like, all right, we got you out of jail. You got ankle monitor on, but you owe us something. So where are they going to get the black those votes for black men if most of the black men, <laughs> if you will, that possibly will vote for them are in jail because of the mass incarceration? So it's like, all right, we let them out of jail and we might have a, a new voting pool. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's diabolical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but it's an interesting thought. All right. Well, is there any other aspect here that you guys you want to cover or are you are we good to wrap up here? I guess I would just say that for, for the Republicans, they've had a long term strategy of trying to kind of break up the Democratic coalition, because in absolute terms, I mean, the Democratic coalition is just larger than a Republican coalition. The Republican coalition is a minority of the country or minority of the electorate. And so they have to do things to try to get to peel off Blacks or Latinos or, or Asians. And the problem is their message essentially is a message that we want to have white people have less competition with other minority groups, that we want white people to have kind of an unquestioned place in society and culturally, politically, economically, and for a larger percent, like the demographics of the country are just changing. And that's going to be harder and harder to do, even if they can peel off a few percentage of people. So I think that the Republicans, as, as dangerous as a lot of stuff that they're pushing is, I think that they're ultimately coming at this from a position of, of weakness. And I think that ultimately, if you just played this out over the long term and the demographics change in the way that they're changing, it's going to be difficult for them if they keep their same, essentially just pro-white message. They're going to have a hard time in the, in, in the long term.
Yeah. Well, I think that's right. And that's that's part of why they're going so crazy right now is that they know that they know that the, the demographics are not in their favor. But on the other hand, they have decided perhaps we don't have to persuade people if we can just get them to stay home. And that's why people who have a progressive viewpoint, you have to do more than just say lesser than two evils is what I would say. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode. I appreciate you guys joining me. Let me put your social media up on the screen here. So Tyson, you are on Twitter and other places at Black No Chaser. So people can check you out there. And then Marcus, you were on most of the places that it's most of the places at Marcus H. Johnson. So I encourage everybody to follow you gentlemen there. And thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that is the program for today. I appreciate everybody for joining us for the conversation. And you can always get more of this program if you go to theoryofchange.show. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network, so go to flux.community for more podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and society. And so I appreciate everybody for joining us, and you can get early access to the episodes if you are a member of our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash discoverflux, and you can also subscribe to the episodes at our website as well, which is run through Substack. So that's it for this one. So thanks for being here and I'll see you next time.